So good to be in the house of the Lord with you today. Can I get an amen from the people of God? Amen, amen. I want to invite you to get your Bibles out. Open them with me to the book of Colossians. We are in part five here of a series, and hallelujah, we've made it to chapter two of the letter. Man, it's been, it's been fun getting into this word with you for these last several weeks, and, and I just want to say, if you've not been a part of this series with us, uh, what we've been seeing is in the first chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul exalts Jesus. He just lifts him higher and higher and higher, and how many of you know that's what we ought to do as the people of God? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Now, we know prophetically he was speaking about being lifted on the cross, but it's still true today that we exalt the Lord Jesus, and he's the one by his Holy Spirit that draws people to him. And so for uh, five weeks now, we've been seeing Christ exalted, and and as he moves into chapter 2, Paul is basically going to begin the argument that because Christ is so exalted over all the earth and has supremacy so Christianity also has supremacy over every other expression of faith. I don't know if you guys believe that or not, but that was an awkward moment. Can I just stop right here and just let you know a little truth you might not know about me? If I didn't think this was the best way to live my life, I wouldn't be here this morning. I don't know about you, but I'm checking out. I mean, it's a beautiful summer day. There's other things to do. Anybody besides me convinced that this is the right path for the most success, the most joy, the most satisfaction? Amen. Amen. And so that's what Paul's argument is. He's saying, look, nothing is greater than Jesus, and so there's no life that's going to give you more value, more satisfaction, more sense of worth or fulfillment than a life completely surrendered to his lordship. And if you've believed anything else about Christianity from what you've read or heard or seen, I'm sorry, but the faith that Jesus offers is a life more abundantly. That's what Jesus said. The enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that you may have life to the fullest. So if you're not living a full Christian life, you need to upgrade this morning. You need the 2.0. You need need the the high-octane fullness of life that Jesus offers you. And so as we get into chapter 2 today, I'm going to do my best to unpack this text. i got about 32 minutes on the clock and about 64 minutes worth of content. So jump right into it with me. Are you ready? Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this. I want you to know how hard I am... contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. These people never met Paul. Those in Colossae, those in Laodicea, those in Hierapolis, to to our knowledge, he was never in the Lycus Valley where these people were serving the Lord. He had preached for a few years in Ephesus. People got saved. They got sent. Some of those were sent to the Lycus Valley, and they started churches, and this is one of those churches. So Paul's writing to people, and he says, I'm working hard for them. I'm contending for you, though I've never met you. In fact, when Paul writes this, he's sitting in a Roman prison about 1,300 miles west of there. And so there's a reason that Paul writes this letter to people he's never met. And not only that, he sends one of his dear friends, a man named Tychicus, to to take the letter. And and it's, it's a perilous, dangerous journey. And so why would Paul write a letter to people he's never met before, 
and, and send one of his good friends on a 1,300-mile journey to get there. I mean, it's not like they had southwest air. I mean, he, like, Tychicus has a long road ahead of him. And so Paul says in the second verse exactly why. He says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now, and let me just say, I want you to leave this place today encouraged. I want you to leave this place more united in love. But I also want to say that some people think that that is the, the end-all, be-all of my assignment. They would look at pastors in ministry today, and, and they would say, your, your job is to make sure that we all leave in courage. Like, your responsibility is that we're all united. And some Christians would even look at their faith that way and say, as long as everybody loves everybody, as long as we all have unity, then we've done our job. Like, God forbid we ever say anything polarizing God forbid that we ever share that verse where Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. I mean, hey, let's just encourage everybody and be unified. Now, let me say, on the flip side, I have no intention of discouraging you today. I certainly don't want to cause disunity, not intentionally, but what I want to say is I have a much bigger assignment than just that, and so did Paul. That's why he doesn't just say, I've come that they would be encouraged and united Period. He says, I, I came for that purpose so that, anytime you see so that in the text, know that that's a purpose statement. Like, I'm about to give you the why. I do that so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. Paul wanted these believers to have truth. Any, anybody in, in 2022 still think truth matters? That there actually is truth? that it's not relative or my interpretation or your interpretation of it. Paul wanted him to know the truth. If I have to deny the truth for all of us to be united, that's not good. If I have to lie about what is true so that we can all leave here encouraged, no bueno. Not good. So Paul says, I want to encourage you. I want us to all be united, but the reason I'm doing it is so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding look at the next part of the verse in order that so he's going deeper in order that they may know the mystery of God namely Christ now now he talks a lot about mystery in this letter because the the Gnostics who had influenced the church and steered them away from the gospel they loved the idea of mystery they loved the idea of special knowledge of special revelation and so Paul is saying you want mystery I'll give you the deepest most profound mystery that exists, Jesus. Jesus. And so if you can imagine like a target hanging on a wall, this, this is Paul in, in verse 2. Paul says, this is my goal. And, and on the outside of that target is I want everybody to be encouraged in heart, and I want them to be united in love. Like that's it. That's, that's what it feels like to be with the people of God. That's what it feels like to be under the authority of the word of God, encouraged in heart, united in love. But inside of that target is a, a greater desire, and that is that you would know the mystery of God, that you would have the full riches of complete understanding. And then there's the bullseye of that mystery of God, Christ. So, so the paraphrase of verse 2 is this. My goal is that you would know Christ. And let me just tell you today, that's really why I'm preaching. That's why I pour hours of preparation into this little 30 minutes. It's not so that you just get encouraged, though I want you encouraged. It's not just that we you get united, though we need to be united as the church. It's that we tap into complete understanding. 
of the full riches of the mystery that is Christ Jesus. And then Paul says in verse 4, I tell you this so that, another purpose statement here, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And that statement right there becomes the launch pad for the rest of chapter 2. He's like, this this is where I'm going. I don't want anyone to deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. I can't think of a more applicable statement to be made to the church in our day and age. Because we talked about it in previous weeks in this series, there were false teachers that were distorting the truth about God's word to the Colossians. And Paul is a spiritual father. He's a shepherd. And so this has stirred him up. It's it's shaken him. He, He cannot be apathetic about this. He feels compelled. I have to speak up, he says. This is why, because I don't want you to be deceived. And can I just say today, this this logic of the Apostle Paul and of the Word of God, it flies in the face of modern-day parenting experts who would tell us today, just let your kids figure things out for themselves. Don't go and and impose your views on them. Don't, Don't do anything reckless like that. What you need to do is just allow them to go on a journey of self-discovery without your perspective limiting their self-expression. That sounds like the philosophy of the day, doesn't it? Like, don't squelch their independence by by imposing the truth that you know. Let them figure out their own truth. Let them figure out their own identity. And I want to tell you today, the next generation does not need a church that's just committed to everybody being encouraged. Everybody just being united. As long as we all feel good, right? I mean, as long as everybody feels good about ourselves, no. No. Paul said, that's not enough. I want to encourage you. I want to love you. I want to wrap my arms around you so that you can discover the complete riches of the knowledge of God, the mystery of the depths of Jesus. That's that's why he says, I've got to write. That's why Tychicus, you've got to run because there's a a generation that doesn't know the truth, the mystery that is Christ Jesus. And, And it ought to compel us. You don't have to be an apostle like Paul. You don't even have to be a biological parent. We're all called to the royal priesthood of the believer. We have a responsibility to communicate the truth of the gospel so that no one may be deceived. And then Paul's going to say in verse 6, all right, let me back up to verse 5. Paul says in verse 5, though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit. Let me just stop right there and say, that's my least favorite verse in all the Bible. Tell you why. I've heard so many Christians use that verse as an excuse for not coming to church. Like, if you're golfing today, don't tell me I'm absent from you in body, pastor, but I'm with you in spirit. No, you're not. You're at the golf course. (laughs) Understand, when Paul said that, he was in prison. He was in, he was shackled, okay? So, like, if if you're in the hospital and you tell me that, I'm going to give you. You can use that verse, all right? I mean, if you're sick at home and you say, hey, I can't be with you, but I'm with you in spirit, I'll, I'll take that. But if you're on vacation, just be on vacation. Be with your family in spirit. Paul was saying, my heart, I want to be with you. I'm in this. I feel the burden. I'm carrying the weight of the church. That's what he meant when he said, I'm with you in spirit. And then he says this. He says, delight, I I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is 
in Christ. I love this. This is classic Apostle Paul writing right here. He, he's like patting him on the back. You guys are doing so good. I'm just so delighted with how, how strong you are in your faith and how committed you are to Jesus. And you know what's about to happen. Like he's patting him on the back. He's putting him on a pedestal. He's about to lay into him. Like, like you read all of his letters and it starts with grace and then it's like, bang, he hits you with something really hard and then he ends with grace. God bless you in Jesus, you know. And and that's what Paul's about to do. He's like, you guys are doing so good. And I'm, I'm, I'm delighted, actually, in how disciplined you are. Then verse 6, he says, so then, and some translations say, therefore. And, and any time you hear therefore, you should ask the question, what's that therefore? And so there's, there's five times here in the rest of the letter that Paul makes a therefore statement. He does it here in verse 6, he does it again in verse 16, he does it in verse 20, he does it in chapter 3, verse 5, he does it in chapter 3, verse 12, and the point that he keeps coming back to through all of the rest of the letter is this, having Christ in your life causes you to live differently. Like, man, you started following Jesus, that's amazing, therefore, keep following Jesus. And that's what he starts in with here in verse 6, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus, as your Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thanksgiving. What Paul is saying here is that salvation is not the finish line of faith. It's the starting block. Like this, thank God you gave your life to Christ. Thank God you're beginning a spiritual journey. Maybe for some of you, this, this is all new. Like you got up, you got dressed, and you're at church. And I would say with Paul, man, great job. Great job. boy. You did it. Now, <laughs> what are you going to do Monday? What are you going to do on Tuesday? And so Paul is saying that salvation is where it begins in Christ. And I love this picture, he says, of being rooted and built up. It's like a picture of a tree. He says it's got to have deep roots so it can bear heavy fruit. And it's the same picture that Jesus gave in John chapter 15 and verse 5 when he said, I'm the vine. And you're the branches, and, and if you remain in me and I remain in you, you're going to bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can't do anything. And just in, in John 15, verse 4 through 10, in just six verses, Jesus says remain 11 times. Like, you think he's getting at something. Remain in me. Remain in me. Remain over and over. What's he saying? Abide in me. You started in me. Let's finish this way. And that's what Paul's saying here. Now, in verse 8 through 23, the rest of this chapter, I just want to tell you before we even try to get into it, this is some of the hardest writing that the Apostle Paul has given us in Scripture. And the reason the rest of chapter 2 is so hard is because he's dealing with issues uh, and he's alluding to false teaching that was in the Colossian church. The problem is he doesn't, he doesn't give the argument and the counter argument. He just makes his point. We don't really know exactly all the heresy they were dealing with. And so we have to kind of piece it together from what he says and from what's happening in other places and from extra biblical history. And so sometimes to just read this is really challenging. But what you need to know is for those that read it first, for those that got the letter that Tychicus brought, it was crystal clear. I mean, it was like Paul was reading their mail. He was speaking exactly to the issues that they were dealing with in that day. Now look at verse 8 with me. He says, I want you to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition 
and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. He cautions them against deceptive philosophy. Now, let me just say, he's not cautioning them against philosophy in general. Some people think that, you know, well, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't be a Christian because, you know, they, they just, they, it's just all trust. It's all blind faith. And, and they think, like, to be a Christian, you got to check your brain at the door before you come in. And, and that is just not the truth. Paul is not saying don't seek wisdom. The word philosophy just means the love of wisdom. The Bible is full of, of, of challenges for us to pursue wisdom. In fact, one of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 4-7. It says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. How do you start? Well, go get some. Some people are like, I, I just don't, I don't know. I, I don't understand the Bible. Do you read it? You're never going to understand it if you don't read it. Get some. And, and then he says, though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Like, it's worth it. Now, tomorrow, Day and I are taking Morgan back to college. So now I have a new interpretation of that verse. Though it costs you all you have, get it. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. So, so Paul is not cautioning against wisdom. He's cautioning against deceptive philosophy. And he says these deceptive philosophies in verse 8 depend on human tradition. In other words, uh, human tradition is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Like people that just think something's more profound or more true because of how new or how old it was. And, and we see that. Uh, some people think old equals authoritative. You know, even in the church, some people that think all the old songs are better than all the new songs. Well, a lot of the old songs are better than a lot of the new songs. But some of the old songs were terrible. We should never sing them again. And some of the new songs are terrible, and we should never sing them. But to, to say old is authoritative is a mistake. People even do, I, it's funny, this same argument, it surfaces. I just saw it recently surfacing again online. There are some people that they, they just say well, the King James, the 1611 King James Version is the only authorized version of the Bible. It's the only good one. That's silly. Now, if you love the King James, read the King James. I love the King James. I grew up on the King James. My dad still preaches from the King James Version of the Bible. But I don't speak Shakespearean English, and I don't, I don't, I don't typically read that style of it. So, so that's not my preference, and that's not what I preach from. But if you love it, go for it. But to say that it's the only authorized version is, is just silly. Because we have older manuscripts of the Word of God than what they had in 1611. We have older manuscripts. In fact, in 1946, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and so we have, like, like my translation of the Bible is a copy of a more original version than the 1611 translation. In fact, in 1945, there was a, an... Egyptian peasant who came across a jar that was filled with Gnostic books. It's called the Nagamati text. And when they opened that jar and they read those books, they discovered that not only did it confirm the accounts and the authenticity of our early church fathers, but it also revealed some of the Gnostic ideas that Paul was arguing against in Colossians chapter 2. So we got more revelation of Colossians 2 in 1945 than they had when they wrote the King James Bible. So to say uh, older is authoritative is silly. And to say newer is truer is also a mistake. Some people, and that's what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he said 
chronological snobbery. It's that idea that everything new, and we see this in our culture today, right? And we want to discredit anything our forefathers said because we got new truth. Like we understand society, we're rewriting it all. Newer is truer, and if it's old, it's irrelevant. So Paul's dealing with that, and to say that is silly. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, he said, I am the Lord, I change not. So Paul says, what I'm concerned about is these people that are coming with this truth that's based on human tradition. I hate when people are in an argument with me and they're older than me and their their go-to line is, well, that's before your time. Like, I don't get it now because I wasn't born yet, right? It's chronological snobbery. Oh, it's been that way since before you were born. And all of a sudden, my, my argument is defenseless because I'm not as old as you. you know, you've been there before? Somebody put you at the kitty table? You know what I'm talking about. I'm like, I know stuff. <laughs> you don't know, son. You know? Appreciate y'all coming for my therapy this morning. <laughs> Paul said I, these, these, el- these deceptive philosophies, they're based on human tradition, but he said they're also based on elemental spiritual forces in this world. Now, some people interpret that as the elemental is like the ABCs of the world. Like they're based on just the simple, simple principles of the world. But, but, but others would interpret this, and there's, there's argument for both, that when he says this, he's talking about the, the spirits of the stars and the planets. In other words, he's talking about astrology. And that was a big part of Gnosticism. You know, we see people... Still, astrology is around today and never ceases to amaze me uh, when I see Christians. You know, they, 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 they want to look up the sign of the zodiac. They want to read their horoscope to try to get insight. And, and maybe it's out of ignorance, so let me just be really clear. Christians have no place dabbling with astrology. Astrology, the whole idea, and the Gnostics believe this, is that, that your, your future, your fate, is determined by how the planets and the stars were aligned when you were born. And we still hear the language in our culture today that it's written in the stars, or there's a fault in the stars, or we should rewrite the stars. And we hear these, this language of astrology, and, and so they would say, like, you know, you're stuck with your fate. It is what it is unless you have some, like, secret password that can decode and, and, and usurp the plan that was written in the stars. Cue the Gnostic teachers who come in and say, we have the secret knowledge. We have the revelation to rewrite the stars. So Paul says, a word of caution against those who come with deceiving philosophies that are based on these elemental spiritual forces of the world. If you think astrology is profound in our day, back uh, in antiquity, astrology was the queen of sciences. Names that most all of us would recognize from history like Julius Caesar, Augustus, Vespasian, Tiberius, Alexander the Great, they would not take a step without first consulting the stars. But I'm going to tell you today, you don't have to consult the alignment of the planets and the stars when we have an invitation to go to the one who aligned the planets and the stars. We can go straight to the source. Jesus is the the depth of the mystery of God. And so so Paul, he has this equation that I've, I've... It's not his words, it's mine, but he he repeats this over and over through his text. And ultimately what he's saying is that Jesus plus nothing equals enough. That's that's the message. Jesus plus nothing 
equals enough. And rather than going through every verse here, for time's sake, I'm just going to mention to you what these five general issues are that, that Paul is kind of coming at. The first one is philosophy, which I've already touched on. The second was astrology, which I've already touched on. And then he, he deals with ritualism, asceticism, and the worship of angels. These are some of the issues that were problematic in the church of Colossae. And for every one of them, what, what Paul is saying is that you don't need to add any of these things to Jesus. Jesus plus none of this is enough. Let me tell you a little bit about one of the rituals. that they were, This was the Ju, uh, Judaism. The Jewish legalism was starting to influence the church. And it was through the ritual of circumcision. And, and he talks about it here in verse 11 and 12. Uh, they were basically telling people that it accepted the message of Christ by grace through faith. Then they were being told by some of the Jews, now, well, if you're going to be a child of God, you know, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that was a, a blood covenant, and so you've got to have circumcision. And he says in verse 11 to them, in him, Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. What's he talking? He's saying it wasn't, a, it wasn't a physical act. It was a spiritual cutting away, not of flesh, but of your whole self. When you came to Christ, the old you died. The old you was cut off. First Corinthians says, if anyone's in Christ, behold, they're a new creation. The old is gone. It's cut off. So Paul says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul says, you don't have to go back to the rituals of circumcision. We have two ordinances that Christ gave the New Testament church. One is communion. We just celebrated that last weekend. But the second is water baptism. And he says, this is a better picture because when you died in Christ, your whole body went under the water. Your whole body went into the grave. You died with Christ. And when you come out of the water, you're raised to life again. So don't go back to ritualism. And then let me just say here, if you've never been baptized in water, we're, we're already seven weeks away from our next New Life Sunday. The first Sunday in October, we're going we're gonna to celebrate water baptism as a church. Now, whether you've been serving God for 20 years or 20 minutes, you should be baptized in water. Because Jesus said this is the outward expression of our faith. This is how we testify to the work that Christ has done in us. And I thank God we now nor never will have a sign-up sheet in the lobby for circumcision. <laughs> but we will have one for water baptism. <laughs> Sorry, babe. The other ritual that... <laughs> The other ritual, y'all come back now. Some of y'all are lost. The other ritual was religious festivals, and he touched on that as well in verse 16. He says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. And, and then look at verse 17, because this is what Paul says about all those rituals of Judaism. He says in verse 17, these are a shadow. 
of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Thank God for the Old Testament. Thank God for all of the, the, the rich understanding that we have uh, pre-crucifixion, pre-cross. But he says those things were all shadows. Now we have the substance. We have Christ today. So you don't have to go back and live in that. And, and then he, he deals with asceticism as well in the church. And I've shared the last couple of weeks how the Gnostics, they had this view that all matter was evil. Creation was evil, humanity was evil, and so because the human body was evil, two thought processes came out of that. One was asceticism, and the other was antinomianism. Now, antinomianism just says that, well, because we're evil in our body, and there's nothing that can be undone about that, you should serve the Lord with all your soul. Serve the Lord with your spirit, and truthfully, that's the only part of you that God cares about. So the logic was, you know, Serve God with all your spirit, but you can do whatever you want in your, in your body. Drink, smoke, sleep around. Just God loves your spirit. It's going to live forever. What you do in the body doesn't matter. And, and Paul deals with that very directly in other places. Like in 1 Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So he pushes back against antinomianism. But in this chapter, he's dealing with the other thought, and that's asceticism that says, well, if if our bodies are evil and we're supposed to serve God, then we need to punish our bodies. We need to starve our bodies. We need to neglect every every physical appetite or every physical desire. And they they took it to the extremes. So Paul responds to to all of that, and he tells the Colossians, he says, don't let anybody judge you who delights in false humility. Don't let people who, who, who dwell in, in these false acts of humility disqualify you from the gospel because, because Jesus qualifies you. We've all felt that before. We felt, you know, we use terms like holier than now. You know, someone tries to make you feel less qualified in Christ. He said, don't, don't let people do that to you. Know who you are in Christ. And then the last deal that he deals with is the worship of angels. They, they were actually teaching, and this is why he had to write and why Tychicus had to run and get the message to him. People were teaching that, that there are many uh, mediaries between God and man. Jesus is a good one, but he's only one. And there's others too, and they all deserve our worship. And I think we can all see the, the holes in that theology. But they were actually cloaking their false teaching with false humility. And here's, here's the danger. They were saying, God is so holy. God is so awesome that none of us can come into his presence. So since none of us are worthy to be before God, we'll just worship these angels and these other mediaries, and we'll let them go before God on our behalf, which might sound spiritual and might sound reverent, but the truth is Jesus paid a high price with his blood. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, he made a way for us through the curtain, through the veil that is his own body, so that we can come directly in and have access to the presence of God. So you do no service to God by saying, I'm going to go to God through any other door than Jesus. Jesus said, I am the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Paul writes to him and he says, don't don't try to worship lesser beings. There was a moment in scripture where an angel appeared before the man of God and he fell down on his face and the angel said immediately, get up. Get up. He rejected his reverence. He says, I'm, I'm, 
I'm a servant of God, like you. Don't worship me. When you put all these things together, what, what you see is this, this cocktail of, of religion. It's, it's pagan mysticism with things like astrology and philosophy. It, it's, it's Judaism with the rituals and, and all the asceticism. And all of it, what it does is it makes much of man's wisdom and it makes less of Christ. So what Paul is doing, he's not saying don't be intellectual. He's not saying don't be academic. He's saying don't do anything that makes less of Jesus. Don't put your insight or anyone else's insight above Jesus. And don't put any knowledge above the knowledge revealed in his word. Because he says in Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. As we end this service, I want to ask our musicians to come back and I want to go to a text that's right in the middle of chapter 2 because uh, this is, you know, Paul doesn't get very far in any of his letters without pivoting back to the cross. I love that. In fact, I I love uh, what Charles Spurgeon said about preaching. He said, I pick a text and then I make a beeline for the cross. I think that's good practice. And so Paul, he's talking about all these things that are happening, but in, in verse 13, 14, and 15, he just brings them right back to center. And by the way, that's what, that's what Sunday morning ought to be about. Regardless of what the topic or the text is or the set list is from the worship team, when you leave this place, we ought to be back to center. It's about Jesus, church. It's about Jesus. And, and so Paul says here in verse 13, when you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. That's that's what the hope of the gospel is. When he says the uncircumcision of your flesh, what he was saying is you, you you were not God's people. You didn't have an inward sign or an outward sign of a covenant. But even then, when you were far from God, He made you alive in Christ. How? He forgave us of all of our sins. And then then look at what it says. Verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. In other words, legally, you should have been punished. Like there's a good case against you. There's a good case against me. Romans says, for all have sinned. Chapter 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. And so Paul writes here, the the legal debtedness has been canceled, which stood against us and condemned us. He, Jesus, has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So just imagine yourself this morning in, in heaven's courtroom, and there's the prosecuting attorney, Lucifer, stands up from behind his desk and he's got a file folder full of everything you've ever done that offended the heart of God. All the sins you've committed, all the evil thoughts you've thought. He's got a a folder full and, and he's just standing on the tip of his toes. He's ready to approach the bench and slander your name. Jesus called him the accuser of the brethren. He's coming. He's ready. He opens up that file folder And it's blank because Jesus has canceled, he's canceled 
the written word of your indebtedness. It says he canceled the charges, and he didn't just cancel them, but he took them, and he nailed them to the cross. Get that picture in your mind. Everything that you've done that would separate you from the heart of God, you say, where is that today? By faith, when we come through Jesus to the Father, those sins do not stand to condemn us. Those sins are nailed to the cross of Christ. The Word of God says, He, Jesus, who knew no sin, He became sin. He he took everything on your rap sheet and mine. And he bore it all the way to Calvary. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. This is the the reason Paul says that, that not only is Christ supreme, but Christianity is the best life you can live. The best version of your life is the one completely surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Why? Because he... He stood against what condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And verse 15 says, And having now disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So more than just a not guilty verdict, he took all of your sin and mine, nailed it to the cross, and made a public show of the enemy. That old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, became a a trophy of our forgiveness. And here's the the beauty. I I know I've said a lot, but what, what Paul is saying, all this other stuff, all these other ways, things you should do, things you shouldn't do, these things will not... They'll get you nowhere. That's what religion says. Religion says, do this, be that, do this, be that, do, be. Do, be, do, be, do, be, do, be, do, be, do. And you can sing that song, and it's never going to satisfy. Christianity says, done. Done. It is is finished that's the declaration that Jesus made on the cross it is finished so when Paul looks at all the stuff that people in his generation were trying to do to measure up he said Christ Christ qualifies you Christ makes you measure up he has canceled the charges of our legal indebtedness. So as we get ready to close this service today, I want to just, I want to pray for each and every person that's in this room because here's what I know about you and me. There's no perfect people here. Since the last time I thank God for forgiveness and grace and salvation, I've made more mistakes. And so that's why Paul, in writing to them, He could genuinely say, I'm delighted. I'm delighted to see how disciplined you are, how firm your faith is in Christ. Now, (laughs) continue. Continue to live. So I'm going to take a moment to just thank God for his mercy in my life. I'm going to give you an opportunity to join me in that.
Maybe you've never thanked God for the redemption that he purchased for you at the cross. It's available. It's available to you. It's available to everyone. Whosoever will can come and drink freely from the waters of life. So I want to just give you a moment here and just a response to what the Lord is revealing in his word today. Would you stand with me all over the room as we get ready to pray? Just join with me in this moment. God, I thank you today that your presence is alive on the pages of your word. God, your word, Hebrews says, is sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates to the heart, and it's doing surgery in us today. Your word is reminding us of the, the depth of the mystery of God revealed in Christ Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. You're the only way to the Father. Jesus, we look to you today. And if there's any sin in our life, if there's anything that would disqualify us from your presence, God, would you nail it and fail it in Jesus' name. Nail it to the cross again and disarm the enemy. Every lie that he brings against us, every accusation, disarm the powers and the authorities and make a public spectacle of them again through the finished work of redemption on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that I am forgiven. Thank you, Jesus, that I am saved. Thank you, Lord, that you keep no record of wrong. That today, according to your word in Romans 8.1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that's your testimony, would you just give him praise with me right now? God, we thank you for redemption. Thank you, Jesus. It's done. It's done. As we get ready to end this service today, I want to ask some of our prayer team to just come and stand in the front of this room. And in just a moment, we, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to just come and receive prayer, whether you need healing in your body or, or just struggling with something in your mind or your uh, relationships. This prayer team, they, they, they're anticipating your arrival in this moment. They just want to minister to you. and We want to partner with you in faith today. But as we open these altars, I want to just pray this word that we've been meditating on back into our lives. We often do this on Wednesday nights where we'll just take the word of God and let it become our template for prayer. So I just want to pray Colossians 2, verse 2 through 7 over our church. We'll put these on the screen as we pray the word of God together. If you want someone to pray for you, would you come now? You don't have to wait till, till we formally dismiss and everybody moves towards the doors. You can come for prayer even now. And I just want to pray this over us today. God, our prayer, our goal is that we would be encouraged today. Lord, let every person in your house today be encouraged in the truth of your word, in the finished work of redemption. And Lord, may we be united in the truth, Lord, not united at, at a common enemy, but united in the truth, united in love. And God, may we discover the full riches of complete understanding so that we can know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Lord, amidst all the confusion in our culture, we want to know Christ more than ever before. And God, I pray against the spirit of deception that is creeping into the church in our generation. 
even the church in America. God, I pray especially for our young people who are getting ready. Uh, next week, we're going to be celebrating them going back to their campus. And Lord, we're seeing deceptive philosophies of our day. Rewrite truth. We're seeing deceptive philosophies of our day. Distort the truth of God and replace it with a lie. Confusion about identity. Confusion about purpose. God, I pray today that no one would deceive the church with fine-sounding arguments. God, I pray today that we would continue. Thank God that the church is strong. Thank God for a full house on a Sunday morning of people that are disciplined to put God first, to seek you, Lord, with all their heart. But God, I pray that you would help us to continue to live in Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here that struggled to stray away from their faith, Lord, bring us back to be rooted, to be established in Him, overflowing with thankfulness. God, may we rejoice in the God of our salvation today. God, I thank you for your work and for your word that you've spoken over us. Give us the power of the Holy Spirit to be built up, strengthened, to continue in the faith, to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said amen. Amen. One more time, would you just bless the Lord with me? Come on, give him praise. Thank you for your word, Lord. And all God's people said amen. Amen. God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful week.